out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Ben Wallers who was a member of the Country Teasers, or could still be, the frontman, guitarist, vocalist, songwriter with the band, and also has been part of um, many other bands, including The Male Nurse, and um, goes by the title of The Rebel. But um, you're going to find out more about that in this interview, Casual Chat. So anyway, I want you to sit back, relax, enjoy because after several minutes of casual chat with Ben, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. And this, as I explained to him about my love of David Bowie and people like that, was his response. Ben, it's over to you. Talking about David Bowie, my first single was... um, I went to WH Smith's and I had to choose between uh, Beat It by Michael Jackson or Let's Dance by David Bowie. And I chose Beat It by Michael Jackson, and um, which I love, obviously, because it's great. But I remember spending a lot of my youth regretting it and wished I'd bought Let's Dance by David Bowie because I felt somehow that I would be slightly more cool if I'd bought Let's Dance by David Bowie than buying uh, Beat It by Michael Jackson. But anyway, my first musical awakening was listening to music with my dad in his car when I was, uh, I don't know, four, five, and it was Elton John, uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, um, JJ Cale, Naturally, um, The Moody Blues, um, Roy Harper, Stormcock. My God, Stormcock, Uh, we love that. Isn't you it great? Song, yeah. You know the song She's the One by Roy Harper? No, I don't. No. Yeah. What album's that on? Good question, which has caught me out. But if you just Google Roy Harper, She's the One, it's it's one of those epic the one. She's the One. It will change your okay. life. It oh, really great. Because I, I recently I got a Roy Harper album not that long ago. Well, you know, 10 years or something ago, 15 years. Uh, the Unknown Soldier has, has a really great cover. The sleeve is really cool. It's like this bleak, sort of grave, barbed wire. And there's a crucifix somewhere, so, and it's like you know uh, the song yes. or whatever. And um, and I and I felt uh, instinctively it wasn't going to be a very good album, you know, because I I really love Stormcock, but every Roy Harper I've heard since I haven't liked as much. Don't think it's as like. He's so heavy on Stormcock, and, and and elsewhere he's a bit more light, too light for me. So I never listened to this album. I thought I'll just Im- pretend it's really good. And I won't listen to it. And finally, I did listen to it not that long ago. I was uh, right. It was disappointing for me, but there was one great song on it. Um, oh shit! I can't remember what it's called. Um, love. It's it's a, it's it's a love song and it's brilliant anyway yeah yes well she's the one is a sort of a song when you were in your i don't know tween, teens and 20s when you fell in love with somebody and you thought this is the one obviously it wasn't um and you played this song constantly and you wanted her to yeah. also love it and she obviously went yeah. to this song but she's the one it's got amazing vocal but it's quite an epic it's it's kind of i think quite a long one anyway but it's interesting you mentioned goodbye yellow brick road because mm-hmm. i had an older brother 
who was seven years older than me, who was into prog rock. And he had two albums. I remember came into the house at a young age, which was a start Sergeant Pepper, which like was like, oh, that's exciting. And I played it constantly in Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was just yeah. awesome. Because Side 4 yeah. had a song on it called Harmony, which was the last song on Side yeah. 4. Jesus, I thought that I still listen to that song today, and I just yeah. think lyrically it's just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. So yeah, yeah. it is good. So well, there yeah. you go. So the eighties, then you were a young kid. So were your parents at all kind of bohemian yeah. creative? No, no. My my dad my dad had great taste in music and loved music. Um, uh, but he uh, and he's got a great sense of humor. I got a, I got his sense of humor and uh, probably enthusiasm for things. But um, no, it wouldn't. He wouldn't describe himself as creative or and definitely not bohemian. He was a he ran a paper mill. He was like a managing director of a of a paper mill so he was like an industrialist type of guy anyway my god there you go yeah. he probably smoked as well didn't he they both smoked until uh new year's eve 1980 something and then they gave up well, well done i mean you know at the time if you were a, a manager or a foreman or a trade union person you had to smoke didn't you constantly <laughs> you can't look at a picture from those days without someone with a fag or people being interviewed yeah on chat shows with smoking and saying, you don't mind if I smoke, do you? And they said, oh, of course. They smoked a lot. They did yeah. smoke a lot. There you go. So then when did you start to sort of think, I'm not just going to be a consumer like me, I'm going to play music? Oh, my parents did suggest it to me, actually. Yeah, like uh, I was um, 17 or 18 and uh, um, they said to me, you seem to be really interested in music. Why don't you try doing it yourself? And uh, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me before. Um, really? Maybe no. I had a bit. Yeah, and uh, so, so um, I bought a four track uh, when I was about 18 and started recording music. Yeah. Mm. And when did you, because during the 80s, because that's obviously the decade I love, yeah. <laughs> you know, 83, 83 to 87 were the Indian yeah. glory years. It was the years of the Smiths, basically. Um, yeah. But there was a kind of a real moment. You had the punk world, which was kind of interesting for two years, if you're lucky. Um, then you had post-punk, which was kind of quite jarring and exciting. And you wanted to like it and pretended to like it, even if it was a bit difficult at times. But it made you look cool. And then you had, you know, like um, Julian Cope and Simple Minds and Big Country, U2. And then the Smiths appeared and it was like... Okay, this is exciting. A new this is my theory. A new chapter appeared, and then you had all those bands like the June Brides and Yeah Yeah No and the Go Betweens, the Chills, all those bands, and the C eighty six world that came out with the NME in nineteen eighty six. So, what was your your musical moment during the eighties? Went from Beat It with Michael Jackson with the great guitar solo from Van Halen. Is it Van Eddie Van Halen? I think so. I think it's a Van Halen, one of the Van Halen brothers. Yes, he just he shredded the guitar. So then what happened to you in the 80s, the Thatcher years? Um, I don't know. I mean, in, in the 80s, because I was quite young, um, I was listening to my dad's albums. But let's see, I think probably... Oh, yeah, 
Um, my dad was into Pink Floyd and um, he was he bought this album, a collection of great dance songs, which is that was Pink Floyd's greatest hits album that they obviously were ordered to release by a record company. That's why they called it sarcastically a collection of great dance songs, because Pink Floyd have always said they're not very good at singles. Anyway, uh, that was my dad had bought that. And that would have been 83 uh, or 84. And for some reason, I decided I was into Pink Floyd, or maybe I didn't decide it happened. I was suddenly into Pink Floyd as a 12 year old. And um, I asked for the final cut for my birthday or Christmas. And um, the final cut is, is a very unfashionable Pink Floyd album. Even today, no one likes it. It came out after the wall. It's uh, very Roger Waters. It's like Roger Waters' solo album, and it's really depressing, and it's about nuclear war. And so at that time, um, we were all terrified of nuclear war. We really thought it was going to happen. I don't know if you're too old to have caught that vibe. No, because, because remember, just remember? pause pause that thought, because yeah. Duran Duran had that great line, didn't they, in one of their cheesy songs where he sings, yeah. Simon Lebon, you come on like a nuclear bomb. And no, I'm... no, 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 I'll correct you there, David. He, he, he says, it's, it's please, please tell me now. And it's something like, uh, loving you is, you say loving you is easy. You're about as easy as a nuclear war. That's the line. That's the line. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it no, was I... everywhere, though, nuclear it was... war. And 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 you couldn't avoid it. And I I learned Pink Floyd the final cut off by heart um, when I was twelve or whenever it was that it appeared. And then after that, it became this dark um, thing. And I couldn't even look at it in my bedroom. I had to hide the, the record. I couldn't listen to it for a decade or so because I was so scared of nuclear war actually happening. Yes. Um, well, I can remember sitting around pubs with friends who were probably smoking, having conversations about, you know, nuclear war and what you would do in the last, if you knew you were only had 12 hours left, and then right. having a discussion and argument about saying, no, you wouldn't do that. You would be terrified. And people go, no, I just think, oh, well, we've got 12 hours, I might as well party. And I was going, you would not be partying. You know, I was quite serious and took it quite literally. And they were, no, you know, I would just say, well, fuck it, let's have a good time. And um, and so we did, I mean, that's what we did in the 80s, kind of, you know, and it was Red Wedge. We had all that kind of world, the angsty world, mm. the Redskins and, you know, trying to, uh, I don't know, Paul Weller was everywhere. I do remember the final cut really well. And it was a bit strange because I wasn't a Pink Floyd fan, but I knew it was all about Roger Waters and his kind of, you know, obviously his dad dying. And then they had, yeah. they, they had two great songs. They had the one that came in with that, Buck all that. Buck all that, yeah. And Not now, the, John. Yeah. No, and then the two sons song at the end. Two yeah. sons, as in two sons in the sky. And um, and I, I too was kind of quite mesmerised because I, you know, I wasn't a big fan, apart from the obvious ones. And um, but that album, I do remember kind of having it and playing it quite a lot during a summer of nineteen eighty something. So it did yeah, have a profound great. effect, and I do still listen to it. So yes, I do. I great. do that really well and and roger was really going through his dad's stuff wasn't he He was really missing yeah. his father and he was really you know a bit like john lennon talking about the death of his mother and all that primal screen yeah. therapy stuff a, a decade earlier so it was kind of a i thought it was an amazing album i don't know why people didn't like it really so 
Great. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because there's only I can count on on one hand <coughs> the people I know that 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 like Pink Floyd and uh, have even heard of the the final cut. So you're yeah. one of them. Great. The two two suns in the sky. I mean, his vocals are so you can hear like every little. Yeah, pattern. the recording's amazing, isn't it? I think it's a bloke called Michael Kamen. Uh, although he might have been the orchestrator and it's produced by the same guy who, who, who did Berlin by Lou Reed, that guy um, yeah, the recording's amazing yeah right, oh, well I don't Bob know Bob Ezrin pardon? Bob Ezrin, I think Bob Ezrin. yes, so obviously profound effect but then, you know, the 80s was full of angsty stuff though you're a bit younger than us um, so then what happened then as, as the decade was coming to an end? Uh, well, I remember Manchester and um, the best gig I've ever been to to this day uh, was seeing the Happy Mondays supporting uh, the... Order. No, it was in London. Uh, they, it was, they were supporting um, James. Do you remember James? God, yes. So I've gone with my school friends because they just said they were going to a gig and and so I was just I just went along and um I can't remember if I'd heard Happy Mondays or not I think I had on John Peel but anyway they were they were the the second support they were the band in the middle and they just were like can't think of adjectives to describe them they were so alienating and and threatening you know like punk um, I didn't. I missed out on punk, and then I I was disappointed by the music of punk because it didn't sound scary to me. And when I went to see Happy Mondays, they were they had all the threat and and uh, fear. You know, they 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 really made the audience scared. And uh, and the music was amazing. They had two drummers, so it was really big. And Sean Ryder was amazing, and Bez was dancing, and he was amazing. There were so many elements that were like uh, difficult to understand, but very satisfying aesthetically, you know, it, to the ear and to the eye. And uh, so it remains my my favourite gig ever. So that would have been when Bummed came out, and I think that's eighty eight. Yeah, and right. yeah. So and then I didn't like. Um, see, I didn't like indie. Sorry, I didn't like indie. Um, <laughs> As a, you know, it's a blanket to give you a blanket statement that um, has many um, contradictions in it. Because now I love a lot of that music. At the time, I didn't get it, and uh, I was into the fall. Uh, so I got into the fall in about eighty-seven, and um, then I was just obsessed with the fall. And um, yes. So in but in the in the late eighties I was at school and I was listening to John Peel every night and I had my tape recorder um during prep, you know, which is the posh word for homework, you know, during yes. the time when you're supposed to do your homework. I was in my room with John Peel on and recording things that sounded good. A lot of techno, you know, in that time. I really liked the techno and acid house and um stuff like that and I, and I would record press record on my tape recorder and then have to make a decision during the song how much I liked it because if I didn't think I was going to like it I'd have to stop it and then try and rewind so I wouldn't waste any tape 
and then and then ready for the next thing you know i remember the pixies i taped a lot of the pixies and i taped a lot of sonic youth and i taped gallon drunk um i remember get, hearing that bloogie uh, on on john peel i recently dug that out because david was died recently and uh you know so john peel yeah that was that was the end of the 80s for me listening to john peel but then i listened mm. to john peel obsessively all through until about 94 i think so so that was my then that was my proper musical education because then i was hearing music that was actually coming out now you know at the time as opposed to uh old music but i didn't i didn't like the indie things he played jangly guitars and stuff yes i didn't like the smiths you know i i fell in love with the smiths very hard in about 1998 when my band members uh, sorry band mates in the male nurse educated me because up until that point i hadn't understood the music i couldn't it was like i couldn't hear the brilliance of morrissey because i because of the jangly guitar music i was really that uh, um close-minded to it for some for some reason but yeah any ever since then i've I'm an obsessed Smith and Morrissey fan, and I love about uh, probably nine or ten of Morrissey's solo albums that a lot of my friends who are Smith fans don't like. Again, you know, I'm rebelling against them. Your yes. Arsenal, uh, Mick Ronson and I. Yes, I think they're great, and and um, yeah, some of the, I don't know. I just love Morrissey. I like it when I hear people saying, oh, you can't like Morrissey anymore. Did you hear the latest thing he said? And uh, I'm like, I, he, I couldn't care less. I'd, I'd love him to say more and more really obnoxious things because <laughs> it just made, it's like it's a cull, you know, because uh, you shouldn't be allowed to like Morrissey unless you understand that he may be a dick, but he's written these lyrics you know you can't unwrite all of those lyrics and songs yes. you can't un you can't un unhear all those wonderful melodies that are so difficult to uh, you know no one else could do those melodies that he came up with what was it? he said johnny writes just gives me the tape and then i mull it over for a week or so or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes well it's funny you mentioned that cuz Whenever I go away for a small kind of weekend, I always have to take my Morrissey book just to read it because yeah, I do I do find him just hilarious. And it's such yeah. a complicated relationship that one's in. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you know, <clears throat> you know Who wants like, a simple relationship? It's who wants it's, a simple relationship. Well, it's yeah. also, I mean, without going too far down this avenue, it's also trying yeah. to work out where it went and how it got there, which I find Difficult because mm. I can. There's a lot of artists that you think you're a bit of a knob, and actually, I'm just. It's easy to say goodbye, but Morrissey's yeah. got such a deep quality to him that, and there's something kind of like, how did that go from that to this? I mean, there, there's moments where you think, yeah, I can cope with that. I can let you get away with that, and then suddenly he says or appears promoting a political party. That when you go and look at the political party, you think, right. Okay, yeah. this is quite interesting. I'm I'm still loving the music, but my God, this relationship is kind of... And then I read this, 
And I think it's brilliant. I just love yeah. his moaning and whinging and his descriptions <laughs> of Jeff, um, the guy from Rough Trade and, you know, the way he puts people down and Julie Birchall, he's got a bit in there where he describes what she's like to be with. And uh, he's brilliant. And then his moment when he goes to James Dean's kind of family place and he, you know, he... I don't know, they find that pamphlet that he'd written when he was very young and they chase him out of the house. And and he's always, everybody's done him in, haven't they? You know, in the book, everybody has screwed him over, you know. And, yeah, he's um, quite, yeah, bitter, yeah. Yeah. Then I did an interview with Alan White, who did a lot of his kind of... Oh, yeah. ...with him. And and he said that after, because he'd written a few things in, in the book about him, and I, and Morrissey did sort of phone up to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I did slightly make that up in Diet. And they're kind of working on the next album. So, and yeah. I was, I was like, well, so what was he like? He said, well, you know, he was okay, you know, and Stephen Street, yeah. a bit like, so yeah, okay, you know. Yeah. And oh, yeah. and also then Craig Gam Gammon, who, who, Gannon, who came over. Who's that? He's the guitarist who appeared in the Smiths very briefly for six months and then right. he gets absolutely slaughtered. But um, yes, in, in the book. But uh, yeah, it, it's. Um, I don't know. It's it's a kind of it, there's a few fascinations in life, and Morrissey and the Smiths is one of them. But you know, yeah. to this day, I do find it kind of interesting. I mean, I think yeah. you know, on the point of the Smiths, and and I think some of the solo work recently has been a bit sort of clunky lyrically yeah. compared to some of his early solo work. But you know, yeah. you know. Well, I've I've uh, yeah, I I think I tried to buy. Uh, I've got a couple of of Morrissey CDs that were more recent and I haven't really managed to uh to listen to them much I've given them a good go you know did you get the one of it. his covers the covers that he did the no yeah didn't know about that oh yes that came out probably two years ago so he does a whole load of um 12 tracks I think they're 12 tracks doing people some really interesting songs but you'll have to have a little listen on Spotify yeah so yeah do check him out. He does a very interesting nice. version of a Joni Mitchell song, which is quite good. So, yeah. Anyway, and um, so there you go. So that's Morrissey. Jesus Christ, completely throwing me now. Um, so then the nineties, the John Major years. Yeah, I wasn't aware of politics during the nineties. I mean, I, I, I'm taking your word for it that John Major was prime minister, but then wasn't Tony Blair prime minister <clears throat> sometimes as well? Ninety-seven. Yeah, because yeah. that was good. I remember that being good. But uh, yeah, I was completely. Uh, I felt that politics was like beneath me and my friends. It was like, uh, in a way, we were rebelling against um, everything, including politics. So um, all my friends were on the dole. And. Um, but we were not political. We were like apolitical, I think. But mate, I don't know, you know, never didn't think about it. Didn't yes. think about it at all, you know. Well, in the, just going back to the good old indie days, in the early 80s, there was a lot of unemployment for various reasons. Well, yeah. the economy really. And a lot of people were unemployed and there was job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, where people were able to sign on for a year as long as you could just make out that you had a thousand pound in your bank account or prove it. And then you could just put whatever you wanted, like poet, flower arranger, singer-songwriter. And so there's a lot of indie bands started that way. So was, 
I didn't mm. realize the benefit system. I was not really into the benefit system in the 90s. So was that quite easy to claim unemployment in that time? Uh, I didn't do it myself because I was living off a trust fund. Uh, so I had a little, I had like a, an allowance. And it was quite funny. It was about £14 a week. And so I would eat these little pots. I'd make a little, I'd make a, like a vegetable, um, vegetable dish with pasta, which I'd keep in the fridge and I'd eat it through the week. And I remember by the end of the week, it, was, it wasn't very nice, but I didn't really understand about money. But I was never, I never had to sign on and I was never starving. But all my friends in Edinburgh, um, they, yeah, they all signed on and it was, it was just, it was like, that was like normal life. I thought that normal life was signing on, definitely not having a job. Not, having a job was like some other thing that other people did. Yeah. And yeah, with hindsight, um, and then of course the Oasis, there's the Oasis sort of um, model, which is if you didn't have the benefit system, you wouldn't have Oasis and all these other bands. And um, I have always felt that a band uh, really has to live in very close proximity with each other so that they can meet at least twice a week, uh, more if possible, and so that they can write music together, you know, because... I've seen a lot of, I've seen London sort of destroy bands because it's just too hard to live in London and, and get together. And um, I think that's what happened to us, actually. But, um, uh, yeah, the benefit system is great. You know, if you lived in Europe, you'd have, a, you'd have an allowance. But then there's another thing that I think it's important for our country, uh, England, which includes Scotland and Wales and Ireland, of course, for our country, England, uh, the proudest boast we've got is our music. And I think, for me, it comes out of a hard life where you're constantly being bullied by straight people. Um, you haven't got any money. You're not really allowed to be on the dole anymore. You can't have that either. For musicians, everything's like, no, 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 no can't do that your parents say you can't do that that's not a job uh your friends say your music shit is too weird why are you doing you know so music the music that's come out of of the english scene for me is special it's like a diamond that's been hewn out of hard conditions which in europe sorry to be generalizing again the, the in general, the musical output of Europe is too soft, and it's like hard water as opposed to soft water. It's 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 too easy to get a grant from your government who support the arts because the government aren't philistines. You know, our government has always been philistines, uh, as long as I can remember. No, 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 no government that I've ever been aware of has a um, sophisticated aesthetic sense uh, and I think that's good for making music because I think the harder it is the better the music that comes out you know yes 
<clears throat> I think we were famous for two things, weren't we? The arts and banking. And then it all went terribly wrong with the Royal Bank of Scotland. And then everyone went, perhaps we're a bit rubbish at banking. <laughs> Never mind. It nearly brought down the global <laughs> economy. We'll go back to the music and, and sell so the back catalogue yeah. of the Beatles. The great export, really. <laughs> Liverpool, really, wasn't it? So, yeah, this is true. I know, I do think, because having done this show and having been a little bit lived through it, though I was in East Anglia, so I'd hardly say I was on the streets. I was more in the field, really. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so there was this kind of real, you know, classic, cliched narrative of the indie world from the 80s is be unemployed, all live in really hobble, you know, places, hardly, you know, have any gas bill or electricity bill because, you know, you couldn't be bothered to put it on, you know, go to the army and navy shop eat TVP all day or just go to the pub for a happy hour where you just get drunk on really cheap beer from four o'clock to six o'clock. But, you know, it was like throbbing, is it throbbing gristle? They all lived together, didn't they? And and their collective yeah. idea was they put all their clothes in a box and then in the morning they would just get up and put those clothes on so it could be any combination that each other mm. was wearing. That was extreme. I expect they also had sex with each other as well, which was a bit hard going. But then with the... So not all bands did that, though it could be interesting. But the 80s indie scene was very much, you know, from what I've seen and also interviewed, was that there's a five-year narrative. You know, there's this sort of 12 months of getting together, you know, young kids, you know, doing their thing, making a bit of a quirky record. John Peel plays it, goes, oh, that's good. Or John Walters, the producer, get the John, you know, the John Peel session. And every city and town in England, Britain, you know, had an indie night, didn't they? You know, mo mostly on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And you could sort of bob up and down the country, you know, the motorways of Bristol, Leeds, Manchester, Norwich, Brighton. I won't go through the whole places. But, you know, they all had an indie night. And you could get that little network and you get the first album, things going well. Second album, everyone's getting a bit irritated. You hate each other and you've got no money. And that's, that's the 80s indie world for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, it, yeah. But there was that intensity, and what I've noticed is that nobody did, particularly in a sweeping statement way, had any other dreams beyond that, because there weren't any other idea of what could happen, because there wasn't any, especially in the 80s, it was like us and them, you were either wham, Duran Duran on that boat, or you were just shuffling around with Billy Bragg and the Redskins, you know, wanting to you know, kick over the government, but you couldn't get out of bed before 12 o'clock because you were too stoned to get moving and you had to sign on the next day and you couldn't be bothered. So, you know, it was kind of, the, that was the eighties, you know, in a, in a, in a sweeping statement really. So I think, um, yeah, the nineties sounded slightly similar as well. Yeah. Well, that's, but, the, but, but the, there was motivation to make music, you know, uh, and, um, and you could do it if you were on the dole and, and you, cause, cause you could practice in the daytime and you could go to the pub all day and you, you, you were talking about music all the time and you were writing music together in your flat and then you had band practice and you were, you were collaborating with your bandmates. And um, yeah, life was completely about music, but uh, it wasn't... Um, when you said it was interesting what you said there about like not having like a dream or or a, or a we my bandmates tended not to have a we weren't ambitious really we didn't really have a goal um well what one one of the one of us did but um 
the rest of us, we were just having fun. But it was very serious because we were very serious about music. And music was like, you know, music was more serious than politics. You know, politics were completely irrelevant because music was too important to waste your time thinking about anything else, you know? And and so music was its own end. And and to fulfill such a um way of life uh being on the dole was conducive to that you know having a job makes it much harder you know because you can only do it in the evenings and then in the evenings the rates go up at the practice rooms and you're tired and so yeah yeah. And, and there's a lot of bands who used to get sort of i don't know a cheap rate between the hours of sort of 10 o'clock and six o'clock yeah. in the morning, you know. And we used okay. to practice, we used to practice at all hours whenever it was cheap. Yeah. And oh, we yeah. had, we, we had a practice room. I think that we rented like, it was almost like, um, I can't remember actually, but it was, we rented it for long hours, you know, like a day, you know, all day or whatever. Yes. It was like our little house. We kept our stuff in there. Um, and we were, it seemed like thinking back, it was only a couple of years and I don't really know how long it was, but, um, it felt like we were in there all the time and we wrote a lot of music and, um, yeah, couldn't do that when we moved to London. Impossible. So did you, this was all based in Edinburgh at the time? Yeah. I was living in Edinburgh because I went there to study and then I met, these guys who are in this band, the male nurse, and uh, they were all, well, they weren't all, but they seemed to hang out at the art school. And um, uh, yeah, and so and so I started my band and I was in the male nurse with them. We were like sister bands and it was in Edinburgh. And then for some reason, there was this sort of, uh, um, exodus to London and every, we all moved to London I was the last one to go actually I didn't want to move to London at all I just wanted to stay in Edinburgh yes but um, we moved to London so was this before you recorded the first album uh, I think we recorded our first Country Teasers album when we still lived in Edinburgh we, we got a, a van and drove down to London to do it uh, so no, we were still in Edinburgh, but, but but then we we must have left Edinburgh. Oh, we actually recorded our second album in Edinburgh as well. So we probably left Edinburgh after our first two albums. Yes, mm-hmm. Satan is Real Again was our second album, and we recorded that in Edinburgh in about nineteen ninety five, I think it was. Yes, and then we probably moved down to London in about ninety six roughly and was that because of the band or were people trying to get careers at that stage uh no (laughs) (laughs) to answer the question it was no uh oh dear i don't want to sort of be a cliche i'm not really sure but a couple of our girlfriends moved first um and one of us i felt I, I think he might have thought that we should move to London, yes, to be a big band, to make it big, 
you know? Yes. I think maybe. Um, but not all of us moved to moved to London, but most of us did, yeah. And it it definitely wasn't Korea, no, because everyone was still signing on in London. Um, uh, yeah, I guess it was for the band. But the but, but the, the see the, the country teasers and the male nurse um, kind of go hand in hand in many ways. And the male nurse was a democracy and a collaborative thing, and the country teasers was sort of my band where I wrote all the songs and I told everybody what to do. Uh, and so wherever I was, that was going to happen. But the male nurse was the sort of big effort, you know, and we were all trying to do it together. And so um, there was uh, Alan, who was sort of in charge of the male nurse. He he was quite hoping that we would be successful, you know, and um, things didn't pan out for him. And he ended up leaving the band. And the rest of us, when he left, we had much more fun because we didn't want to carry on trying to be successful. <laughs> we just wanted to make music. And Country Teasers, uh, I have no idea what I've ever wanted out of it um, except just to play music. And uh, I think I always wanted, like Morrissey said, I always wanted to be famous, go down in musical history. But I could, I don't think, I don't think I've, I don't think I know how to do it in a career way where you write the kind of songs that would actually make you go down in musical history or <laughs> or even get enough money to make the next album. You know, I just for some reason I just can't do it. And um so um in answer to your question, um I moved down to London because my girlfriend moved down mainly. Uh and I was reluctantly following everybody else. I think if it had been up to me, I would have said, no, we're staying in Edinburgh. You don't have to move to London. That's a stupid idea. We've got it great up here. We can carry on practicing. We're making great music. But I don't, you know, I just did what I, I just followed everybody else, you know. Like yes. sheep. And did you ever, I mean, in that time, you know, because obviously the, indie record labels. I know there was all that issue with Rough Trade going bust at the end of the 80s, which brought down an awful lot of other companies and individuals who lost money on it. But yeah. during the 90s, things picked up again. Did many labels come knocking at your door? No, zero. Zero labels. Uh, Alan sent, I remember from Edinburgh, We he sent a demo to Food Records. Oh, yes. Uh, the one that had Blur. And Alan had this very bleak look on his face one morning because he said that he'd got a phone call from the guy from Food Records. Can you remember his name? There's two. There's one from Manchester who was in that scene with Eric's, which um, David Bath. David Balf. Balf. It might have been him. It, yes, that he's he's in he's mentioned in in Julian Cope's books, isn't he? And also, David he's the, he's the inspiration for the Blur song, you know, about the man in the big house because he, you know, he I think sold the record label or something and All made right. lots of money. So he's, I don't know. Can you remember that Blur song from the eighties about he's a, you know, punchy, nice, punchy, yeah. Keith Allen he, did the video thing. Or was in the video, but anyway, Alan Alan had sent this demo to Food, and he said that the guy from Food Records had phoned him, and he said, "I'm holding your tape in my hand, 
Um, it's rubbish. Uh, and listen to this. This is me dropping it in the bin. <laughs> this is, you know, I, now that I'm telling you this story, it's probably not true. I might have even made it up, but that's what I'm remembering. That was our, that was the closest we came to indie stardom, and uh, and we had a song that was called uh, "My Own Private Patrick Swayze," and I wrote the music uh, along with Alan. We collaborated on the on the music, but but I stole the kind of uh, melody and rhythm off "My New House," the fall song, which is on this nation saving grace. It's got the same rhythm and a similar kind of guitar rhythm the notes are all different and everything and it sounds completely different but the rhythm is kind of and alan became obsessed with the idea that blur had stolen the song from the tape in in the food waste paper basket and written park life which and that's yeah so you know didn't go down well it didn't it didn't make us feel good but no no, no indie no i i always thought the male nurse was sort of cursed you know the country teasers i only ever sent one demo tape out and it immediately was liked by the record company i sent it to crypt records who were based in hamburg and they specialized in kind of garage punk and old re-releasing they did a series of re-releases called back from the grave which were old, literally garage music, you know, from America, from the nuggets. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so, but did you yeah. do a John Peel session with the male nurse? The male nurse did two John Peel sessions. Yes, yes, we did. And, and did you have the famous Dale Griffith, who was in Mott the Hoople producing, or was it Mike Robinson? Good question. Um, I can't remember. Because both of those names are very familiar to me, but it might just be from other sets. I'm pretty sure Mike Robinson, maybe. I, I remember thinking we were being recorded by an icon. Right. You know? and, and, when, and when we were being told what to do, which really wound us up, um, I remember thinking, let's not get wound up. He's an icon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but there was, a, there was definitely like a BBC or, in uh, uh, um, establishment, there was an establishment vibe going down where, because we were obviously very young and naive in some ways, they thought the producers that we wouldn't want. We, they, they. It seemed that they thought that we didn't mean our music to sound like it did, that, and they tried to sort of change it. Like, don't, you know, why don't you tune your guitar or why don't you play in this way? And I remember being really, like, biting my tongue because I just thought, what do you think we've just been fucking doing for the last five years? You know, we're not, we're not idiots. But so the first Peel session, I remember thinking, doesn't, didn't sound very good. But then by the second one, we'd sort of nailed it and we, um, it sounded great, I thought. Yes. Yeah. And you, do you ever bring out the album or all sort of the recording of that session or the session? Um, well, uh, uh, Lucy, Lucy McKenzie, who's an artist who, who's friends of the male nurse, she released an album 
not that long ago of our sort of best stuff. And I think she bought the rights for um, most of the second peel session, I believe. So it did get released. Yes. Yes, because your your output of work, I must admit, you know, you you're like one of those outsider artists who I interviewed someone the other week who's yeah. who has, his latest project. He's already released sixty albums this year. He's kind yeah. of going to release a lot more, and he does artwork. And I wish, oh, half Japanese. That was the band. Um, Dave, D- yes, Dave. What's his called? David? No, Jack Fair. Jad, 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 Jad Fair. Fair. Yes, that was him. And hey, can I recommend something for you to listen to though? His brother David Fair yeah. had a had a band called Cuckoo Rockin' Time. Yeah, and they did an album called Cuckoo Rockin' Party Time, and that is one of my favourite albums. It's so good. Oh, Cuckoo Fair, Dave Fair. Right there, you go. Yeah, I mean he. I mean, if you go to his Bandcamp page, you know, you'll just go. It's a busy year. He's he's prolific. It's a 60, yeah. 60. So yeah, so yeah, but you're 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 got a prolific kind of output put of work here, haven't you? Yes, yes. Well, it's uh, so all I did really was record music for many years. I just did it nonstop, and uh, um, I suppose I recorded music nonstop until either a the muse kind of dried up and I got a little bit too old or B, my money ran out and I had to get a job and I got a job and I've been working ever since. So working a job um, has definitely reduced my output quite a lot, you know. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, I still I still think I could get in the Guinness Book of World Records, not maybe for the most ever albums, but like I'd be in the, cho- I'd be in the top 10 probably. Yes. To quote Morrissey, a government scheme to is it destroy your dreams? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but you were on Fat Possum Records, weren't you? Yeah, we had one album on Fat Possum. Yeah, Destroy All Human Life. Yeah. Yeah. And that must that have felt... Because I think well, R.L. Well, Burnside was on that label, wasn't he? Yeah. They had loads of really amazing blues guys. That was their thing, blues. And because uh, we, we went there and... Um, uh, it's right there in Mississippi, Richmond, I think it's called. No, is it? Anyway, it's it's in Mississippi, Oxford. That's right, Oxford, Mississippi. And um, yes, I didn't go on the trip, but some of my bandmates saw the uh, the very depressed neighbourhoods of Oxford, Mississippi, and Fat Possum's output was mainly blues guys rl burnside and lots of others t model ford and um i think they had one other white band apart from us but um we uh ended up on them because um because we'd been on crypt records john spencer's blues explosion they were on crypt records and judah bauer he, he and his brother had a blues band and they were on fat possum and Judah Bauer said to me at a gig, why don't you send Fat Possum a demo? Because I don't think anyone was releasing. I think Crypt had run out of money and um, so nobody was going to release our album. So I sent it to Matthew Johnson and yes. And then the great thing about that was that, that, that Fat Possum, Matthew Johnson, 
um, paid for us to go to America for the first time. And we'd never gone to America before. And that was 1999. And they bought a van and we drove around America on tour in 99. And ever since that date, up until, up until 2004, I think is our last tour of America, we went on tour of America every, pretty much every year. We did loads of tours of America. So Fat Possum uh, enabled that to happen, you know, yes. to get the ball rolling. Although they only did one album, and after that, it was In the Red used to release our albums, and they would often help us out with tour money and, uh, you know, stuff. But basically, we were doing it kind of under our own steam. Uh, touring America. So you must have a massive cult following in in America, mustn't you? Yeah, well, it's, I don't know if it's massive exactly, but it's uh, bigger than the cult following we probably have in this country. Although I'm not sure now. It's like I don't really know. Because um, your your monthly listens on Spotify is nearly nineteen thousand a month, which is is it really? Isn't it's pretty it like, good, isn't it? Wow, absolutely. I mean, it's like, <laughs> so, you know, and, and LA loves you. So um, it's like, wow, you know, it's, it's obviously you've, you've really sort of left your mark in America. Yeah, well, you know, our, our, our record label In The Red, who've released most of our albums, they, they live in Los Angeles. And um, yes, um, it's good, yes. But we did, yes, we worked quite hard, you know, touring. And did um, you enjoy the touring experience? Um, <clears throat> mostly, yes. It got more gruelling. I mean, as a band, Country Teasers, it got gruelling beyond words. And the last tour was so gruelling and we just about broke even. And so the tours, we usually lost money. They were really good fun um exhausting uh but then like by the end it was we started to sort of think i think that this is not working you know uh, it's not panning out you know we're not making any money it's really hard to do because we were sleeping on people's floors and things you know it's not like we could afford to go to a hotel or anything like that yeah so it was totally grueling and we had all sorts of things like bands breaking down and all that and being ill we didn't have any romantic um exciting rock and roll adventures just hard grueling trying to make the next gig on time stuff um and we stopped but then i've done lots of tours solo uh of america with usually with this band spray paint who are friends of mine who who they were connected to a label who released a couple of albums of mine. And those tours have been so enjoyable. They've been quite short, like a week or 10 days. And they've been on my time off from work. And those have been like some of the happiest memories of, of my life, really. Mm. Also, I'd stopped drinking. And drinking, uh, et cetera, on the tour, makes it harder you have more fun but it's harder you know because the next day touring america you've probably got to drive 10 hours average to the next gig and if you're hungover 
it's just it makes the next thing a write-off so mm. so i've been i've been um free of all that and doing these tours and it's been just so much fun lovely you know i've i've gone to played in this great place uh i can't remember what it's called it's on the border it's on the south of texas with the mexican border and it was so hot and exciting and you played in this old mexican cinema and all these teenagers there and it was great so i've had lots of fun on tour yes god you probably um share the same audience as morrissey i think he's got a big mexican fan, yeah he's got he? a big mexican fan base <laughs> just had to get more jewelry know. you need more jewelry and more fun yeah. and clothing but um, <laughs> you're virtually there put a bit more weight on as well yeah. um, you'll be fine but more meat you... in my diet yeah TVP. What about, um, did you have a moment where you all sat down as a band and said, you know, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? No, we've not had that chat yet because, you know, like I said earlier, it's my band. And so I, I should imagine the rest of them are all waiting for me to phone them up and actually say, sorry, we haven't played for however many years it is. I'm going to put us out of our misery and call it quits. I don't think I'm ever going to, you know, don't don't tell the band this, David, but I don't think I'm ever going to actually call it quits. You know, it's like, even though I think old bands playing, like over the age of even 40, I think it's too old. It's, it's horrible. So um, God knows what how it would actually happen, but I don't really think I would ever call it quits, you know. Uh, it's it's been a long time now and we you know i was saying earlier how i think a band should all live in the same town yes and all practice together and we haven't done that for years you know we we used to we used to get offered gigs and we would we would come together to do the gig so we'd say to the person putting the gig on you're going to have to give us like three grand or something because we've got to get somebody over from america and we've got to got to practice for a week so we've all got to leave our jobs or whatever it, this person's got kids and so we'd get together in this really artificial way to practice old songs so that we could play a gig and i thought oh this is awful this isn't a band we're not a band you know we're just mm. we're just uh we're doing like a we might as well do a session for absolute 80s or something and so uh we haven't been a band for a long time and um um, if I was a real man, I would say we've we've quit. You know, we we, we when country teasers doesn't exist anymore. But I'm not going to say that <laughs> because somebody might be listening to this uh, this show. You know, like a, a, a Levon Musk is that his name? Elon Musk. Elon Elon might be Elon Musk, fan. and he might he might think, oh my god, I could I could uh, send you into a space. Lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> send this band to space and do the first ever space gig and we can do that Julian Coates from Space Rock yeah on Mars yeah and, hopefully uh, we'd all die of like not being able to breathe and that would be the end of it yeah there's a film called Dark Star I think it was John Carpenter's first film where they oh yes I haven't seen it it's a, it's a, is it a they're all stoners, aren't they? And they go to space. Well, they're floating around space, blowing up dead planets, but they've they've been there for so long, they've all gone a bit gaga, and they've got this talking bomb. So it's kind of quite a cute film. 
but yeah. you know they, they just don't want to ever look in and see each other again on this little spaceship so um it's a you know it, it, it's of its time he started the project as a as a student making a film and then it was like well actually it's quite good you should keep going perhaps you should stay in films i think it was john carpenter so when you were really recording the last album the empire strikes back yeah which is, did you know that was kind of going to be the almost your last recording session with the band no no i think at that time we were just still um um i thought we were kind of getting better and better as a group and um i was like um doing a lot of recording and 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 i think i think my song writing was good you know i was writing lyrics that i wasn't so embarrassed about and uh um yeah and when we did that i thought this is uh much you know better than the last one but not quite as good as it could be and so i'm looking forward to doing the next one next one will be even better but it, that was that was the time that i was talking about where things had become really grueling and recording that album was not enjoyable it was really hard and um so I guess, yeah, no, we, I, didn't, I didn't think of it at the time that it would be the last one. Um, but with hindsight, uh, it's obvious that things were just, like, it's, just, it's sad because the, 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 um, one of the main problems we've got as a band is that I um, got older and lost the... Um, ability to just tell people what to do without being bothered about it you know so so i was a dictator i thought of myself always as a benevolent dictator uh but nonetheless i was a dictator and it's partly because i was just very confident that what i thought about music uh was was right you know f for us you know i knew what had to happen um, but I sort of lost that feeling, and gradually I just thought, well, what, what, why? What, I'm, I can't tell everybody what to do. I don't know what to do, uh, and so, um, so the band sort of lost its its leader in a way, or its focus. And then, since then, none of the other bandmates have ever phoned me up and said, uh, "Hey, let's get back together and." And do an album or something because yes. uh you know not, that's not the way the band has been um although a couple of them have have wanted to come and do stuff and we've done stuff together but you know the magic's kind of gone but actually after after the, the empire strikes back um uh, me and the bass player who who was my wife at the time and the drummer we did record an album in our in 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 me and my wife's flat uh, for devil. a label called Holy Mountain. Well, no, the devil was another thing. Yeah, that oh. was a really good, really serious project. Yeah, that was a band. Yeah, yes. practiced like bastards. I mean, we we practiced ruthlessly, uh, but that was under the impetus of James, who was the James Edwards, he was kind of the main um, 
he was in charge kind of thing really although i don't know if he would say that but james and i wrote the songs together in long hard working sessions and then we taught sophie the songs or she would she would make up the drums and then we would practice a lot for the devil yeah yes. so i slightly thought you were going to say the devil and that's when i jumped in and then got it wrong so what was the band that you were talking about that you were oh well it was country teasers it was country teasers so the last the last so far until we do the next one the last country teasers album um is called war w-o-a-r and it was only released as a split album with this guy called Easy Tiger, who was a one-man band from San Francisco. And it's on a label called Holy Mountain. And so Leighton, the drummer, me and Sophie, the bass player, we kind of improvised an album just because we were asked to, you know, they said, can you do an album? And, and we improvised it. And then I worked quite hard afterwards on some lyrics and some singing. And um, we called it War because that stands for without Alistair and Robert, because um, Alistair was ill. He's the guitarist and he, 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 he had like, he'd, he'd started to get really ill with, with I think it was Crohn's disease. And, um, and Robert lived in uh, New York and there was no money, so we couldn't get him over. So we recorded the album, just the three of us. And then we went on a tour as well, actually. We, we did a tour of, Scotland and Brighton. It was like a three-date tour. Glasgow, maybe Edinburgh, I can't remember, and Brighton and yes. London. And we played, the three of us played these songs that we'd recorded. But it's I'm, good. I think it's a, a great record. I'm very proud of it. Yes. My God, that is, trying to keep hold of your, your creative output is quite something, isn't it? Because you're really... You know, so suddenly, then you thought after that, we'll we'll form this band, The Devil. Well, no, because what happened with The Devil was James Edwards, he's a genius. I don't like to use the word much, but he is definitely a genius. It's going to be uh, when he um, dies, uh, they're going to say, oh, yeah, he was a genius uh, because music comes out of him or is sort of stored in his brain he's like a computer and um he writes very good complicated music which is also very catchy and he's had a band called naught for a long time you ever heard of them naught they're like a heavy heavy band where like there's so many notes it's really it's almost harder to listen to than play in right. naught but it's really hard to to play anyway they would support Country Teasers a couple of times and we played with them. Um, and uh, James and I talked to each other at a gig and said, wouldn't it be great to collaborate? So James and I started writing songs together. And then after a while, we decided to call ourselves The Devil. And um, yeah, and then we got Sophie to play drums because she's a brilliant drummer. and. Um, that's how that happened. Yeah. Oh and then we recorded an album. Which is quite phenomenal. But within all this time, you're still recording as the rebel, aren't you? Yes. I, I'd always, I, I got, I gave myself the name, the rebel in about 1998, I think it was 99. 
that was when I got the idea that it would be a great name. Up until then, I'd been calling myself lots of different pseudonyms, but um, um, basically I'd always been recording uh, all the songs that would then go on to be Country Teasers songs. I'd been recording them on my own, on my four track and like, you know, releasing them as little pretend albums and tapes and things. And sometimes they'd get released officially by record labels and sometimes not. Uh, yeah. yeah. My God. Yeah. But then did your recording kind of come to a bit of a halt then in the, after the yeah. day, which is 2013? Was that the kind of last time you were writing and recording or were you still doing stuff with um, The Rebel? Um, I was recording. I've, I've never really stopped recording, although it's died down a lot. And, um, yeah, well, I think maybe Sophie and I lived together in um, a kind of studio flat like it's an artist studio, like a painting studio in Camden. Uh, and there was a garage in there and I could record in the garage. So I had a really good setup. And um, uh, when we left that place and bought a house, um, which was in 2011, um, ever since then, I haven't really had a setup. I've, I've not had a, a decent place to record um and i think it's all uh you know things things coincide you know i got this job at the garden center in 2008 and i was getting older and um sophie and i were living in this house kind of in a domestic way and it's in a council terrace you can't make any noise and um yeah so so like my my output has has dwindled and changed you know like I used to really enjoy playing drums uh that was the most fun I would have I would write a song on a guitar or a piano and I'd record it on a Walkman and then I would uh listen to the tune that I'd recorded uh and I would figure out what would be a good drum part mm. and then I would hammer the drums out you know and um that's something else that you can't really do in a city unless you are able to hire a studio or something or have your own place in the back. Uh, so I ended up hiring, hiring practice rooms and playing drums for like two hours and, and storing all the drums I was playing on a mini disc so that then I could use that afterwards. But, um, I don't know what I'm talking about now. I think I'm describing the, the decline of my um, worth as a human being. You know, I'm, I'm not worth anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but then, as, as we know, David Bowie sort of disappeared, didn't he, in 2004, and then suddenly appeared with a, a new album, and then Black Star. I mean, so people do sometimes go off the radar a bit. So do you... Yeah when the moment is right and the stars aligned and Jupiter returns into your orbit, you know, yeah. it's all going to be waiting for you to say, forget the rhododendrons, the dahlias, I don't care about the garden centre, I'm yeah. going to pass the two compost, it's not my bag, baby, I'm going to hit the <laughs> drums 
are you are you do you feel like you know it's just waiting for that moment mm, no but i wouldn't write it off you know it's like 50 50 i'd i'd put a bet on that it might happen but not a large amount of money a fiver i'd i'd bet a fiver that that is going to happen i'm going to one day go right i'm going to yes quit my job and i'm going to devote myself to recording uh, the masterpiece i think i've said this before in other interviews actually where like because uh, some guy asked me in an interview oh well how much money would it take to record that masterpiece you know you're talking about and i think i said you know one million pounds <laughs> and um, <laughs> so uh uh yeah but it's i don't know i just don't i i've got so many strange sort of very conservative opinions i think i'm too old to to record uh the masterpiece i i wish i'd recorded already you know and and uh because i think this genre which i don't really like the term rock and roll is awful it's so it's horrible but i i'm going to use it anyway this genre rock and roll that is what i operate in where I want to be a rock star, you know, that's what I want to be, a, a rock, you know, a rock star, like yes. the people we've met, that's what I want to do. I think that is kind of a young man's game and women are brilliant at it, at it too, I must say, you know, and about half the CDs I own are women, Mikachu, Nico, Kate, Shadi, and on and on and on. But I'm a man and I think that I finished long ago you know at, at this genre that I'm trying to do really well in and ever since then I'm kind of um, doing a slightly different thing a, a version of it like a, almost like an ironic old man's commentary <laughs> on the genre so um, yeah in answer to your question I don't think that's ever going to happen but I would love to take a load of time off work uh, get a studio together, be able to smash some drums, sing really loudly. Uh, oh, I've forgotten to mention that I am recording quite a lot with a friend who's got a studio just up the road. And he's really good at recording. Uh, he's called George and he um, is brilliant. And we, we've been recording some really great music which might turn into something yes yeah oh, go george well that's it's always it's always exciting so really it's kind of interesting because you had to you know like your 20s and 30s your output was phenomenal absolutely extraordinary wasn't it thank you you know it's... you mean in terms of quantity because quantity is more important than quality i'm with <laughs> you there <laughs> i think i think that's why alan partridge loved one of these authors just love the fact that the output was so prolific. No, it's just like, you know, like prints and people like that. You know, you did sort of record so much material and just dedicate every every second of your life to the world that is rock and roll, really, isn't it? I know you hate that phrase, but... Well, it's good fun, though. You know, I, do, I still love doing it. I love recording. So I still record a huge amount of stuff. Yes. Yeah. And have you been tempted in the last, you know, especially last year after March, did you did you sort of rummage around your some of the archives and think, God, what am I going to do with not just the recordings, but sort of other bits of memorabilia? Because 
let's face it, people have been sort of sort of sorting stuff out, haven't they? Yeah, mm, I'm, I'm, my life's too messy to be able to do it. I've got a box with my archive in it, but I've got a friend called John Free uh, who lives in Australia, and he uh, is he's been releasing my old CDs, like uh, well, my old albums. He's been re-releasing them, kind of thing, on CD, and we, we've we've been doing that for a while now. So uh, I don't think, and I think we'll carry on until all of my albums are are released, you know, on CD. And he's quite good at asking me to get dig things out from the from the box and the archive right. and artwork and stuff, and and. Uh, yeah, it's another thing I'd like to get around to one day, but I don't, I don't really see it happening in the near future. But um, I, I got asked to do an album by a um, an art gallery in Holland during lockdown, uh, and it was going to be like a virtual, you know, album that that would be just like in their virtual gallery, mm. and that was quite good fun because I looked. I had a rummage around and I found something I'd recorded about a year previously and had sort of forgotten about. And I re-edited I edited it a bit and did a bit of work on it. That was a good sort of lockdown thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's always, it's kind of, always kind of exciting. I mean, if it's something that you could have said to your 16 or 18-year-old self starting out in that creative journey, is there any bits of advice or feedback you would just want to say oh by the way something that I've learned through time and wisdom and experience are these key points I just wonder what they would be don't be so stressed out about it you know because I was really um I was very ambitious as a younger person um but that ambition was um frustration I was just so frustrated and it was almost like a sort of uh you know the Morrissey song um I know it's going to happen um yes. and and so I have actually sung that to myself because <laughs> I've been so um depressed really you know like just thinking it's just never going to happen and when I was younger I desperately desired so badly to be famous and um uh, not rich necessarily but that obviously I wanted to not worry about money ever again and but famous you know I wanted to be famous and it was a burning desire that meant that I couldn't relax for a second I couldn't enjoy life at all because um I didn't really value anything in life that wasn't in some way going to help me achieve my goal of being a famous rock star now uh, as i've got older um that burning ambition has, has 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 sort of gone away really or died down and it's less it's not an obsession or anything it doesn't make me i'm not bothered and i'd like to go back and say to my teenage self don't be worrying about all that you know don't 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 have that ambition as like some sort of obsession that's going to ruin your life. Just think of it as something that might be really nice. You know, I think mm. in the male nurse, uh, we did, we, we, we achieved that goal. You know, our goal 
was to spend the whole practice um, writing music and just making music. That was it, you know. And um, you know, it's an end in it's an end in itself. Yeah, just making good music. So, if you were going to say to somebody, if someone said, "God." you know, what album do you recommend or, or sort of period? What would you, rec- you know, what would you, where would you guide them to? You know, by me? Back, yes, by your back yeah. catalogue. Where, 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 what was your proudest moment or kind of? Uh, yeah, gosh, difficult question. I, I think that uh, the Country Teasers album, um, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, I would say is the best one for me. And... Um, and then my solo stuff, um, I think that my favourite one that I'm proudest of um, is called um, The Race Against Time Hots Up, because um, I remember I just recorded an album before that where I was being deliberately annoying and making it really hard, and I wanted to do bad music. And then to sort of apologize and make up for it, I tried really hard on the next one to make lots of songs and and it be really catchy. And so that was the album, uh, The Race Against Time Hots Up. But then I'm not a very good judge, you see. I, and uh, I, I think um, when you ask a musician to recommend their album, you're not going to get a very good answer. And it's a better idea to ask a fan. And I think more people would say the album I recorded called Prawns is is better than that. And um, Satan is Real Again is the Country Teasers album that uh, is the best. Mm. And they could be right. I don't know. Yes, interesting. Did, did being in the band and all the sort of the personnel stuff... Has that left you feeling battered at all? Or have you managed to navigate out of that? Oh, um, has it left me feeling battered? You mean like the personal? The yeah, thing, the just because when you meet, you know, because I've been involved with different scenes and different people and, you know, you suddenly realise they're all part of your past and sometimes it feels, you know, it's like, oh, that was quite a lot of work and, you know, it, it was quite exhausting, yeah. you know. You wouldn't do it yeah. again. I just wanted, you know, but being in a band and touring and being in the studio and releasing albums, it can often, you can often feel a bit of a shaken by the whole experience. I just wondered how you managed, if you managed to navigate that okay. Yeah, I think I did okay, actually, because um, we, it was never a full-time thing. You know, it was only ever like a, a, a kind of holiday. We'd get together go on tour or record an album and it would be we'd be uh leaving our normal lives to go and do it for for a bit of a break so we were never like a professional band you know doing it um all year or anything and so we never i don't think we ever really had any personal difficulties or anything like that we all got on fine and uh um no, I don't think I... I mean, there was a time in The Male Nurse when it was a bit difficult. Uh, uh, and um, then it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's awful. Yeah, 
I mean, what's a typical fan of 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 like the country teasers or the male nurse? What you know? How do you well, there's that? a guy. There's I don't know about male nurse fans. Um, they're more intelligent than country teasers fans. Country teasers fans are less intelligent than male nurse fans, and indeed less intelligent than most people in the world. And uh, <laughs> there's two of them. There's one called Ramsey, and there's another called Dave. And um, they're tall blokes, big blokes, and uh, they're really nice. Um, they have uh, an ironic sense, you know, a highly developed ironic sense of the world, which means, um, you know, you know what's right and what's wrong morally, but you are able to enjoy things aesthetically uh anywhere on any kind of spectrum you know yes. so um yeah i think that's probably what a country teasers fan is somebody who um has strong morals but then i have met the odd one that's not doesn't seem to be uh quite get it you know the odd one. I remember meeting a guy in America once and he was a bit scary. He looked like he was still in the army. He was wearing camo and we all wore camo or I wore camo. So I love camo. It's really well cut. It's really a breathable fabric usually and it's lovely stuff. Uh, it's practical. It's got loads of pockets. But this guy was wearing this camo jacket and I was talking to him and he looked really angry and his girlfriend was sort of behind him and at no point did he ever make any effort either to introduce his girlfriend or get out of the way. Like he was just, he, I just, and I thought, right, I don't want you as a fan. You know, you've just got not a basic standard of, hum, a basic standard of hum, humanity yes. is required. So I don't know if occasionally there might be the odd country teasers fan. And I've been asked this question before. Have you ever met anybody that doesn't get the irony or the satire? and just thinks that a lot of the things I'm singing, I mean uh, straight. And I haven't really met anybody like that, but I think that guy, if we'd, been, if we'd carried on talking a bit longer that night, I might have discovered that he was getting the wrong end of the stick here and there. Yes. Nasty. So, oh. so yeah, so Country Teasers fans have a highly developed sense of irony. Nice. Well, that's groovy. Well, look, Ben, thank you ever so much for this. This has been brilliant. Oh, thanks, David. Thank you. And uh, I've really you... enjoyed it. Thanks. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. And um, yes, if we you had want... a good connection. The, 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 the thing didn't break down. It was great. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. I know the other day I did one. Well, it's not that interesting, but we had this most phenomenal rainstorm and um, the whole connection thing was going down. So um, what was, was it? Yeah. yeah. Not good. Yeah. But, um, yes. Well, look, thank you ever so much and um, all the Thanks best. A lot. I'll keep in touch. Same to you. Yes. And um, all the best for the future. And, you know, I believe it's a big birthday. Well, God, that's such a naff thing to say, isn't it? But you're hitting 50. Yeah. I'm going to be 50 in September. Yeah. It's all going to happen, isn't it? Yeah. That's when it's going to happen. It's going to be the big one for me. I know yeah. it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen someday. Yeah. No. <laughs> Look, thanks a lot, Ben. Okay. Take care. Cheers, Dave. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 
And that is how you say goodbye. Though. And that was me in conversation with Ben Wallers, talking about his life in music, the country teasers, and also the male nurse and the devil. Plus, he goes by the title of The Rebel. Did I just say that? Possibly. Anyway, big thank you to Ben for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Obviously, keep it nice and positive. Otherwise, I don't know why you would have bothered listening to all that. And um, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.